The reading this evening is Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52, and it can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1029. The boy Jesus at the temple. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they travelled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Amen. A couple of years ago, we were on holiday in Devon and um, went down to the beach one day, fairly deserted. So I went down to the flat sand near the sea with uh, the boys to play a bit of football. And after a while, Zach um, had had enough and decided to go back to, to where Liz was lying down on the sand. Um, in the meantime, uh, the beach had filled up quite a lot. So whereas when we arrived, there were just a few people there. By the time she, he went back to find Liz, it was pretty full. Anyway, we carried on playing football, and um, probably about a quarter of an hour later, we decided, well, maybe we would go back now as well. So we went back and uh, found Liz and, um, and oh, Zach. And I uh, said, well, where's, where's Zach? And came back the reply, well, I thought he was with you. Sort of thing we'd normally do, so um, obviously both of us thought each other was joking, and, um, but soon realised, actually, no, it was a bit more serious than that, and he'd been lost for the last quarter of an hour or so. Um, Panic set in, we started to immediately scour the beach, but um, fortunately it wasn't long before we found him, and um, uh, he was still okay, not uh, distraught or anything. Um, But it's uh, just a classic example of the the feelings that the parents can have in that disastrous moment when you think you may have lost your child. Madeleine McCann's story gripped the nation, didn't it, a few years ago, because Anybody who's left their child on their own for, for just a moment will know just how easily it could have happened to them. That horrible sense of fear, that powerlessness. And so as we read this story of Joseph and Mary losing their child, it's, it's very real, it's very down to earth. The only difference is this child that they lost happens to be the son of God. What I like about this story is that... Uh, There's a tremendous sense of community in here. Uh, Mary and Joseph felt confident about leaving their son in a big group of of relatives and family, all making the same annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. It's that sense of 
big church day out, church holiday, that sense of church barbecue, all ages coming together, people feeling secure um, amongst uh, the crowd. But of course, this isn't just any crowd we're looking at in this story. This is Jesus. And we're starting a new series in Luke on Sunday evenings. Um, So often we do the Christmas story and um, we just leave it there and we'll go off and do some other book in the Bible. But I think it's going to be hopefully uh, useful this time to um, pick up where we leave off the Christmas story and just look at these early chapters in Luke. Uh, So we look at at Jesus' childhood and his uh, adult ministry. Well, this evening's passage is the only account we have in the Bible of Jesus' childhood. There's a big gap between his birth and his adult ministry. And this is just a glimpse into the life of Jesus the boy. So what does this passage teach us about Jesus? And what example does it give us as his followers? Because we can't just assume that everything we read here is applicable to to us. Neither can we assume that we have nothing to learn from it. Just because we are human, Jesus is God, doesn't mean there's nothing that we can learn from it. So we're going to look at it under two headings. First of all, Jesus the boy was different from us. He was unique. He was the son of God. But secondly, he was one of us. He was also fully human. So how do we bring these two things together? Well, first of all, Jesus the boy was different from us. Having realised that Jesus was not amongst the the tour party, Mary and Joseph go back to Jerusalem. They go back to look for him. I don't think it means here that they spent three days looking for him. It probably means that they spent one day travelling before they realised he wasn't there. Um, They probably spent another day going back to Jerusalem, and on the third day they found him. Where did they find him? Was he um, up to mischief? Was he hanging out with the local gangs, stealing donkeys or whatever? No. It says... He was in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. What a normal thing for for students to do, to sit at the feet of the rabbis, the teachers, to to discuss theology. Um, Often this sort of question and answer format. But what is surprising here is that Jesus was only actually 12 years old. He hasn't celebrated what uh, Jews um, today call the, uh, the bar mitzvah that happens when you are 13 that sort of coming of age, he should have been with his parents. And yet, despite his age, we're told here, everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Amazed is a description that we will keep hearing as we uh, go through and read about Jesus' adult ministry. Have a look over the page at chapter 4, verse 22. There it says, when Jesus picks up the scroll and says um, that scripture has been fulfilled today, it says in verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And look over at verse 32. Again, he's gone down to Capernaum now. On the Sabbath, he began to teach the people, and it says they were amazed at his teaching because his message had authority. That amazement that we see when Jesus starts his adult ministry is already there present as a young boy of 12 years old. Jesus would have been asking questions, the teachers would have replied with maybe with other questions to him, and he would have answered in a way which just amazed them. And the reason why people are amazed at him 
is because we read later that he had authority. This was somebody who was very different from everybody else in the way he spoke, in the way he behaved. He knew what he was talking about. We're not talking here about intellect. We're not talking about some sort of child prodigy. This is not another Mozart, who uh, the musicians, I'm sure, will correct me. I think um, learned to play the piano at four and composed his first work at uh, five. This is not... um, William Sidis, who'd written four books and uh, was fluent in eight languages by the age of seven, apparently entered Harvard at the age of 11. But Jesus amazed people as he spoke with authority because he was the son of God. He had a human nature. He had a divine nature in one person. There was something about him that even at this early age that people could see was different. Something that later people would caused them to follow him when he simply said to them, come and follow me. Everyone was amazed at his understanding. How else was he different, though, from from us? Well, he had a particular call. He had a a unique mission. I love the reaction of Jesus' parents when they they finally catch up with uh, Jesus. It's so so natural. Uh, It does make you wonder what it would have been like to have been the parents of Jesus, doesn't it? Um, Parents of the Son of God. It's tempting to think, how brilliant must that be? Um, To have a child who's sinless? (laughs) You know, you wouldn't have had to worry about him arguing, fighting with his brothers. He'd have always done what he was told, always got on with his homework. Just like those Turton boys, really, I think. Um, But of course, there would have been other challenges, wouldn't there? Because when Joseph and Mary brought him as an eight-day-old baby to the temple, have a look over in chapter two here, earlier on, They've come to present him to the Lord. And look what Simeon prophesies about him in verse 34. This is what Simeon says to his parents. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Great, they're thinking by at this stage. Then he says, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. A sword will pierce your own soul too. Imagine if we included that as part of our dedication services. I don't think we'd get too many parents coming forward with their children. And this instance is probably the first episode when Joseph and Mary begin to realise what it really means to be parents of the Messiah, the Christ. Imagine what it was felt like to have lost not just your own child, but the child of God. Somebody else's child. Liz and uh, some friends um, went up to Wollaston Manor one, one sun, summer day. I think it was an inset day when all the children were off school and took a whole bunch of them up there. Took with them one, one lad whose uh, mother was, uh, was at work um, on a business trip to India. And uh, children went off and played uh, hide-and-seek, as you do. Um, but uh, this particular child, whose mother happened to be away, uh, found a very good hiding spot. And... Um, decided he wasn't going to come out of it until somebody found him. Um, after about half an hour, people started to get a little bit worried and started scouring the place to see where he'd gone, thinking the worst, obviously, that uh, he maybe had been abducted or something. Everyone was wondering who was going to make the phone call to India to tell his mother that, I'm sorry, we've lost your child. Fortunately, after an hour, he decided maybe the game was over by then and turned up, but... Uh, A terrible thought, not just to lose your own child, 
but to lose somebody else's child. Imagine what Joseph and Mary would have been thinking to have the Son of God, who they were responsible for. They're beside themselves. You know, they hadn't stopped worrying since they realised that he wasn't amongst the crowd. The whole way back to Jerusalem, they would have been thinking, what happened to him? They've been blaming themselves for not taking sufficient care, not leaving him with the rest of them, thinking he was okay. And then to finally find him and to see him calmly sitting there while they've been tearing their hair out with worry, it's not surprising their relief immediately turns to anger. Look, why have you treated us like this, they say? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Didn't it occur to you that we would be worried? What does Jesus say? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I should have, should have thought about that. No, a very strange reply that comes back from him, isn't it? Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Or more literally, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? In some ways it comes across a little bit like a teenager who comes home late to find his parents worried sick and says, what are you worried about? Of course I was okay. But of course Jesus' answer was quite different here. He was quite serious in what he said. Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you. And Jesus says, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Not the same father was looking for me, the father in heaven, my heavenly father. Jesus has two fathers. He acknowledges Joseph as his human father. And as it says in verse 51, he he was obedient to his parents. But his true father was in heaven. This is the one who takes priority in his life. And in this sense, he is unique. You know, we may be privileged to call God our father, but he's not a father to us in the same way that God is a father to Jesus, the son, the one who had been with him since the very beginning the one who had an intimate relationship with, the one who shared exactly the same will as the Father. This phrase, must or it is necessary, occurs in several places in Luke's Gospel. Have a look over at chapter 4, verse 43. People coming looking for, for Jesus try to stop him from leaving them, what does he say? He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Have a look over at chapter 9, verse 22. Jesus says to them, his disciples now, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. He must go and preach the good news. He must be killed. Why? Because this is God's plan for him. This is his mission. This is why he came to earth, and nothing can divert him from that mission. And so when he says to his parents, I must be about my father's business, He's giving them an early reminder of who he is. He's not just any child here. He's reminding them why he has come and nothing will distract him from that purpose. And it may mean a sword will pierce their own souls. Just as Peter was powerless to stop Jesus when he said, you know, never Lord, that should never happen to you. And Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Jesus' ministry was unique. He showed the the priority in his life 
that he was about the Father's business. Jesus was unique, but Jesus was also one of us. Because whilst he was unique in terms of his relationship with God the Father, there was much that we can learn from him, much that we can apply to our own lives from this episode. We've seen that he made it clear that his priority was to serve his Father, his Father in heaven, but actually the same applies to us too. As children, we are meant to be obedient to our parents, as Jesus was to his human parents. Throughout our lives, we are meant to to honour them. But our priority should also be to our Father in heaven. Later on in Luke uh, chapter 14, it says this, it says, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, obviously, this is a figure of speech. It's hyperbole. It doesn't really mean for us to hate our parents. Otherwise, how can we, can we honour them? But what he's saying is that we have to surrender every aspect of our lives to Jesus. And that includes our family life. That includes our friendships. As we were looking at yesterday morning in the, the leadership course when we were talking about calling every aspect of our lives, our families, our work, our leisure, our friendships, every aspect is important to God. And the key thing is that he is there at the center. What are the implications of this then? What does it mean for us if um, we are meant to surrender all these aspects of our lives to to Jesus? Well, first of all, it means we'll be doing things that others don't understand. Jesus staying behind in the temple without telling his parents was, was about reminding his parents that he had a unique position. But I think it was also saying that if we are to make the will of God, our relationship with God a priority in our lives, then there will be times that we do things when we make choices and decisions that people won't understand. Like simply coming to church is one thing, isn't it, that many people will not understand. You know, you can walk past the tennis courts up there on a lovely summer's evening. People are out there hitting a few balls around. And they'll probably look at you thinking, where are they going? Why are they going to that, that shabby old building at the end of the, uh, the graveyard there to sing a few hymns and read the Bible, uh, pray? What, what, what is that all about? But then I guess you walk past the tennis courts on a cold winter's night and you're probably thinking the same about them. They must be mad. But, you know, when you tell somebody at, at school or at work what you did at the weekend, well, you said, I went to church. It was a great time. Enjoyed it. Loved it. Again, they'll probably look at you thinking, a bit crazy. When you're sitting in the train on the way to work or at your desk in your lunch break, maybe you open the Bible. People think, what's he doing? Now, you may say that is obvious. Of course, if we are Christians, we may appear a bit strange to those who are not Christians. But here we're talking about Mary and Joseph. You know, here we're talking about your perfect Jewish parents, those who did all of them was expected of them under the Jewish law. Back in verse 27 of chapter 2, we're told that they brought Jesus to the temple and it says to do for him what the customs of the law required. In this passage in verse 41, it says every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover because that was what was expected under Jewish law. These are parents who accepted their calling from God to be the parents of Jesus. They're following his commands. And yet they're surprised by Jesus' actions here. 
And as Christians, it's not just making radical choices that those who are not Christians won't understand. It's also sometimes those who are Christians. You may know that uh, this year is the last year before university tuition fees go up. And uh, it's been a huge increase in the number of university applications. People who would have taken a gap year have decided maybe we'll just prolong that because it's going to cost me a lot of money. Um, however, there will be 13 students starting at the Christians and Sport Academy uh, coming up in the, at the end of January that, uh, that Wellesley runs. These are guys who will still be going to university. Um, these are guys who've decided to, to come anyway because that is a priority for them in their lives. Now, I expect some of them, you know, would have had Christian parents, but even then those parents would have probably said to them, actually, do you know how much this is really going to cost you by, by not um, going to university this year? That is a huge sacrifice that they have made. We can do the minimum that is expected of us as Christians. If we can carry on from day to day, from year to year, without actually asking God, what do you really want me to be doing with my life? What are the big things that you want me to be doing? He may actually say to us, well, carry on doing faithfully what you're doing. That is precisely what you should be doing. But he also may say, well, actually, you, you need to give up what you're doing. You need to be doing something radically different. You need to change the way you spend your time. At the end of the leadership course, yesterday we mentioned uh, the story of Alfred Noble, a successful uh, businessman who um, apparently one day opened the newspaper and was very uh, shocked to see his own obituary in there, even though he hadn't died. He read it. Can you imagine that, reading your own obituary? And... Uh, was quite shocked by what he read because that is not the way he wanted his life to be recorded. Changed the way he, he behaved, changed his whole life. He led a life of philanthropy. Um, prizes were named after him, the Nobel Peace Prize, for example. If you were to read your obituary, what would you want it to say? One of the things you'd like to see in there which you just haven't got round to doing yet is God challenging you about your priorities in your life? Do you need to make radical decisions that some people just won't understand because you've surrendered your whole life to Christ? Doing things that others don't understand. Secondly, being dedicated to spiritual growth. When Jesus' parents found him, we are told he was among the teachers. He was listening, he was asking questions. And at the end of the passage, it's quite a strange Sentences, isn't it? Verse 52. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and men. Now, that's quite a difficult concept to get your head around. If Jesus was fully God, you may ask, wouldn't he already be the all-knowing? How could he grow in wisdom? Um, how could he grow in favour with God? Surely he's got a perfect relationship with him. And I think part of the answer to that is an example we were setting, setting us. You know, it's a bit similar to his baptism. He didn't need to be baptised. He didn't need to show that his, uh, his sins have been washed clean. He was making a new start. He was uh, being raised to, to life. But he was setting us an example of obedience to him in being baptised. How, how do we grow spiritually? We're exactly the same way as Jesus, by listening, by asking questions. And there are many ways in which we can do that. We can listen to sermons. We can listen to God speak to us as we just open up the Bible and read it. 
as we pray, is to God, spending time in prayer, listening to him, being open to the Spirit's leading. Listening is not always easy, though, is it? It implies, first of all, that we have something to learn. It implies forcing yourself to listen to someone who you might not find it easy to listen to. Maybe because of their particular style, maybe their, their mannerisms. Maybe you feel something is being addressed, well, it's not really to you, it's, it's really just everybody else who's here. Maybe it's addressed to the children. It's got nothing to say to you. Listening and learning implies that you don't know it all. And therefore, when you've heard something again for the millionth time, that you still need to hear it again, you still need to apply it to your life. It's not switching off, it's saying, actually, maybe there is something new that I need to hear here. And the other aspect of growing is, is asking questions. You know, how often do we, do we leave here and we just forget immediately what was said? Are there things that uh, are said from the pulpit where we think, well, actually, I didn't quite follow what he was going on about there, or um, actually, I didn't really agree with him. I don't think it says that here in the Bible at all when I read it. You know, make a note of these things. Come and ask uh, me or Jeff or whoever's preaching. Don't just think it doesn't matter. If you're going to learn, you need to, to ask these questions that come up. Ask these other questions. You know, what did he think about that sermon when he was talking about whatever? You know, home groups are obviously an excellent opportunity to do that, to, to, to ask questions, to bounce ideas off each other, to try and get to grips with what the Bible is saying. Um, and again, you know, don't think because somebody's asking a really basic question that um, you just want to move on quickly. People will be at a different level from you. Allow them to ask questions in that sort of group. Learn together. That's part of growing as a family. What listening and asking questions demonstrates is a thirst for growth. Do we want to know God more? We'll never fully know him this side of eternity. And so when courses are offered, when the days are offered at different churches, when things like the leadership course are offered, do we say, well, I know all there is to, to know about that particular thing. I don't need to go to that. If we are to thrive as a church... We all need to want to grow in wisdom, in stature, and in favour with God and men. There's no such thing as a Christian grown-up. We are all still children in many ways. And we do have to be careful. We don't look down on, on new Christians, those who are still coming to faith, those who are still struggling with the issues that we struggled with many years ago. Don't look down on them. Help them come up and understand them. Well, as we finish and before we come to the Lord's table, um, this passage is telling us that even as a boy, Jesus showed that he was unique. He was the Son of God. He had a special mission. And he was absolutely committed to that mission. Nothing was going to distract him. A mission that would see him give his life on the cross. As we're about to remember now. But he also set us an example in terms of being prepared to do things that others wouldn't understand and to be dedicated to spiritual growth. Let me just leave you with that question. Are we prepared to show that same dedication? Because what it will mean is surrendering our whole lives to him.